0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Jojo Meta. Did I say that right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I actually normally pronounce it Meta, but it doesn't matter. You know, I, I, get, I get all sorts of different ways of pronouncing it.
0: And I heard about you because a couple months ago, there was a big flurry of news about ecocide. And at first I thought, what is this? It had this feeling of, of at first I thought this sounded kind of impractical. And then I thought of past guest Seth Sheldon, who I thought the same thing about when I heard about what the work that he was doing on making nuclear war, or nuclear weapons illegal. And when I spoke to him, it changed everything. And I was like, oh, it wasn't that that was impractical. I was looking at it in a way that, in the old way. And so you're working on something called ecocide. So I'm reading a bit from your, your bio online. So you co-founded Stop Ecocide in 2017 uh, alongside barrister and legal pioneer, the late Polly Higgins, to support the establishment of ecocide as a crime in the International Criminal Court. So what is ecocide? Ecocide is mass damage and destruction of ecosystems, severe harm to nature, which is widespread or long-term. And your goal is to make it illegal, which I don't know to others if it sounds this way. At first, it sounds like, oh, that sounds great, but not practical. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, that makes a lot of sense. And <laughs> I, I urge everyone to go to ecocide.earth right? Correct. And which I'll link to. I want to know a bit about how you got started. How, how could you come up with this crazy idea? Yeah. Uh, and then is it a crazy idea? <laughs> did you think it was crazy at first? And, and maybe you could describe it better than I just did.
1: Um, well, I mean, it's interesting. You've kind of got two questions in there. You've got kind of the origins and then you've got how I came into it. I mean, when I first encountered it, it was actually reading an article about Polly Higgins, who I ended up working very closely with for the last four and a half years of her life. And I remember reading about this idea of criminalizing serious destruction to nature and thinking, well, that's you know, that's kind of a great way to go. That looks like the biggest game in town. It's like, you know, you just say to all these guys that are destroying the earth, well, actually you've got to stop. You're not allowed to do it anymore. And it's like, well, that seems like a really sensible thing to do. And I guess that that was as far as it went at that moment. But, you know, I can now say that, you know, the, the term ecocide actually is just over 50 years old. It was first coined in um, 1970 by Arthur Galston, who was a biologist who was involved in the creation, actually, as as far as I understand, of the defoliant agent orange, that Uh was used in Vietnam. And he was horrified at the the use of it and what happened. And he coined this term ecocide to describe that destruction. And so the term has been around for a while. It was used on the international stage in 1972 at the first UN Environment Conference by the Swedish Prime Minister at the time, Olaf Palme. And it kind of, it percolated in the background in legal and political circles for some decades. And it actually surfaced it's sort of more in, into the public domain, courtesy of Polly's work. So, you know, after 2010, but the concept of criminalizing serious harm to nature was actually present when the Rome Statute was drafted. And the Rome Statute is very important in this conversation because it's the governing document of the International Criminal Court. It's the treaty that created the International Criminal Court. And when that treaty was being drafted in the 1990s, there was originally a clause that would have covered serious Crimes Against Nature, Serious Harm to Nature. And it never made the final cut. And I I think it'd be great to just pause for a second and think What what this world would have looked like now if that had actually got into that document. And it was particular countries that raised objections and although there was never a vote at any given time you know it was just sort of withdrawn quietly at some point there were particular countries the US the UK France and the Netherlands and at one on one occasion i think Brazil as well who voiced objections to putting this into the treaty and yeah, so it's 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 very interesting, and this was a, this was one of the things that Polly Higgins discovered when she started investigating. You know, how can we create a legal duty of care for the Earth? Because this was this was this question that was driving her, and that actually took her out of a kind of lucrative, you know, courtroom career to really investigate this. And what she discovered was that this had not made it into international law, and she kind of then made it almost her life quest to you know reinstate this missing international law. And I encountered it through her and, and in, in about 2014, and we worked together from that point onwards.
0: Did you have an evolution of, of your perception of it also? I mean, I came to it after years and years of your year working on it, so it's been refined and has made a lot of progress. And I saw a lot of support for it, but I would imagine that you came into it before all your work. It must have been more lonely, more distant, like more, what's the word, you know, not likely to happen.
1: It was certainly uh, thought of in that way by many people that we spoke to. And, you know, Polly, I think, you know, at times did feel like a voice in the wilderness. And, you know, it it was seen as a bit, you know, left field, a bit extreme and actually kind of fell between two stools a little bit in the sense that, you know, the legal world didn't take the environment. As serious, you know, as seriously as it probably should have done, and you know, still now the body of environmental law is not on the whole taken as seriously as you know law that involves damage to people or to property. You know that that's one of the issues that that we aim to potentially you know, shift the mindset around with with this law. But also it was seen as a bit pie in the sky. It's like, you know, that's that's never going to happen. And even, you know, Polly and I both both worked on this for years, you know, without salaries, just with the absolute conviction that this was, you know, this was actually going to happen. And, began, you know, she began the diplomatic work some years before we launched the public campaign. And she garnered quite a, a sort of, a, quite a large kind of grassroots following as a result. But what, what's always been interesting about this is that, You know, the developments have actually a lot of them have happened sort of behind closed doors over time, because with, you know, when you're dealing with essentially diplomatic work, it's not visible until those countries or those politicians that you've been speaking to make it visible. So we for many years we had people saying, Well, that sounds like a great idea. And we'd be kind of sitting there, kind of going, well, you, you don't understand. This is more than a great idea. This is already starting to happen. You just can't see it yet. So it's very, very exciting, I suppose, to, to watch that develop. But what was fascinating about um, when Polly herself departed, which was a, a rapid, very sort of intense cancer situation, and that was in, in 2019 what I discovered was that I was of this kind of interesting situation because obviously her, you know, those who've been following her were kind of devastated saying what's going to happen, you know, to, to Polly, but what's going to happen to this work if she disappears. And it was that strange phenomenon where I don't think it's uncommon though, where, you know, a particular idea or initiative has a very strong figurehead in a particular person. And it kind of has people on one level, people kind of sit back a bit and they say, well, that's, Polly's thing she's doing that so I don't really need to think about it or do it because, you know, she's doing it. Little knowing that, you know, we were sitting there going, would be really great to have some funds and support and all of this. And actually what happened when she passed away was that a whole bunch of people got in touch with me as her closest associate and said, what can we do to help make this happen? And so the last kind of, you know, two, three years has almost been a huge dot joining exercise, discovering that we weren't the only people looking at this. In fact, there were lawyers elsewhere. There were campaigns elsewhere. There were, you know, people who were really keen to help make this happen. And those dots simply hadn't yet been joined. And so what we've got now, sort of, uh, you know, two and a half years on, it is a global movement. And it's quite it's been quite an extraordinary journey.
0: I'm hearing a lot of excitement. I mean, connecting dots is very different than pushing a boulder up a hill. You didn't mention historical precedent. And I feel like genocide must not have been a crime at some point, And then it became a crime. And there must be a lot of history behind that. But is that a big something that motivates you as well, a precedent that you can follow on?
1: I think it's a very important sort of linkage to make because, you know, before the 1940s, before Nuremberg, you know, the concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity simply weren't present, you know, and there were key individuals that took those forward. And of course, it's been, you know, hugely a huge privilege to work with uh, Philippe Sands QC, the lawyer who wrote East West Street, the book that focuses particularly on the work of those two lawyers, those two uh, two legal scholars who brought forward the ideas of genocide and crimes against humanity. And in a sense, prove that certain determined individuals can actually change the face of international law and, and bring something new into existence. And and in a way, you could say that seventy five years on, that's exactly what's happening now. And it's something about responding to the challenge of the time. So you know, at that time, after you know, at the second world, the end of the Second World War, you know, the world was looking at effectively a kind of crime that had not been something that the world had really faced before something on the level of the holocaust for example and now i think we're in a similar moment it's it's kind of you know new times new crimes if you like you know what what we're facing globally as a challenge is precisely the destruction of nature and and the ups the upset of our climate of our ecosystems that's what we're facing globally and so you know this law potentially is about stepping up and responding to that
0: you said it earlier, it is that one person or a small number of people can make a difference on a global scale, in this case, international law. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when we, before we recorded, I said to you, I, I saw a balance between individual responsibility and action versus affecting big change. And now you immediately caught on, of course, individuals can make a difference. That's what I, And I, I was like, oh, I meant to say perception of, a lot of people think that they can't make a difference.
1: That's absolutely right. And I think, um, in fact, I had a really interesting experience a little while ago where I was invited to give a talk. And normally when I give talks, I don't use presentations. You know, I don't use PowerPoints. I just speak. But this particular occasion, I was asked to give images or some kind of slideshow with what I was doing. And I decided I would find an image for each bit of what I was wanting to say. And I wanted to talk about exactly this, this issue of personal agency. I had this sort of strong sense that that if we have a belief and a confidence and a kind of awareness of our both our desire to act and influence the world, but also our capability of doing so and an awareness of that. And I wanted to talk about that, and I spent 45 minutes on Google Images trying to find an image that encapsulated this idea of personal agency, and it was really difficult. I did find one in the end, but if you think about it, what that said to me was that our culture doesn't really focus around this concept, you know, this is not something, and I started thinking about it further and thinking, do you know what, we're just not educated or acculturated to know that we have personal agency, and we all do. I mean, there's nothing in this world other than, you know, if it hasn't grown out of the ground, it's here because of human imagination and human intention. That's just a fact. And so, you know, all of that comes from somewhere. And yet, most of us, you know, are educated and and sort of brought up, to not feel that we have, you know, a level of agency that we can sort of act, you know, in the world and and, and create a difference. And so when it comes to, you know, facing something as big as climate crisis, ecological crisis, you know, we're kind of left floundering around a bit thinking, well, you know, okay, I can turn a few light bulbs off, I can reduce my plastic packaging, I can, you know, eat less meat, you know, those kinds of things. But effectively, we can, you know, we can actually do a lot more than that. You know, I didn't come to this from a history of environmental, running an environmental NGO. I had a really sort of quite a varied sort of work life before this, including entrepreneurship and doing design and uh, working in the travel industry. I mean, quite a range of things. And yet this, you know, what I did have was the absolute certainty that if I needed to make something happen, I could do it. And and Polly had the same thing. And I believe that anyone that makes serious change in the world has to start from that premise of, you know, this is something that is possible. You know, everything that is, exists in the world is here because somebody has intended it to be. And creating that intention or ha- you know, having that intention and following it through is something that you know, I believe we're all capable of, and is actually ultimately, it's the biggest untapped resource on the planet: is every single person's, you know, imagination and ability to create change in the world. And at the moment, we're all sort of sitting here, we perhaps waiting to be told what it is that we can do.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of people saying, "Here's what you should do," "No, here's what you should do," but not, not a lot of people saying, "Here's what I, here's what I'm going to do." Mm. I had the listeners know, and, and I just told you about my experience when I challenged myself to avoid packaged food for a week. Avoid buying it, and there was. I thought I wouldn't be able to do it, and I certainly didn't think anything would come of it. I didn't plan like my podcast is. It emerged from acting, and there was a moment. There are a couple of moments. One of them was when I went to the supermarket, or not supermarket, but a small market near me. And on the, during that week, and I've been in the market many times before. And I walk down to an, an, the aisle that I normally start in. And I look at the shelf, and I realize everything's in boxes and cans and jars and, jars and bottles and stickers and rubber bands and I felt helpless. I felt stupid because I the degrees, and I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't eat without harming someone. How could I be so helpless? And so, I don't know, duped. I just felt like an idiot, not an idiot, but like at a, a total loss. And that's not a good feeling. I don't like that feeling. Well, if I feel that way, I, I mean, I'd rather have it confronted. It. And that confrontation you know, one of the big shifts it made for me was that I did what school taught me, which was to analyze and plan. It actually, from the the time I had the idea to go for a week without food packaging to when I did it six months passed, six months of analyzing and planning, figuring out what to do day one, day two, day three, and I didn't actually act. And then one day I said, I'm not going to die if I go for a week without, you know, just on fruits and vegetables. And that, now fast forward years later, it's almost a decade now, when I see economists saying, we got to figure out how we're going to like, figure out this ex- sector of the economy or that sector of the economy. Or I think to myself, that's analyzing and planning. Like Adam Smith didn't come first and then they started growing. He came and described what was already happening. And if we really want to solve the problems, we got to start acting, face the problem, solve them. If we try to solve every theoretical problem before we even start, we're never going to start. But it feels really productive when you're sitting there and planning and, and analyzing you're like, oh, I'm really doing something here. And if everyone does just what I tell them to do, it'll work. But then everyone's like, well, what about this? Like, oh, that's a good question. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> and it's really unproductive and it's unsatisfying. It's full of blame and and then the crazy thing. One of the big things I want to get across is that when people act, yes, you will face helplessness, insecurity, futility, confusion, ignorance, and then then you get past it and you become it. like anyone out there who wants to become a world expert in this area. It's a couple of, doing a few things brings you there.
1: (laughs) You're absolutely right.
0: There aren't many, most people are experts in something else and they don't really know what they're talking about in this area. And they make all sorts of predictions and give all sorts of instructions that aren't really that useful. And so someone listening to this, tell me how, how this sounds to you. That if if they love what you're doing and they want to help you, they could contact you and you could tell them you probably have tons of things that you could use the extra hands to do. But if Mm -hmm. they want to do something not exactly what you're doing, they might pass you by with something even more important.
1: Exactly. I mean, what I would, it's funny, I mean, this has kind of emerged out of a number of conversations I've had over the last couple of years, but people do sometimes say that, you know, what can I do? And obviously there's things that we can encourage people to do to support what we're doing in terms of changing the law to prevent harm to the earth. You know, you can go to our website, you can, there's a whole list of actions you can take and even just talking about ecocide we know makes a difference because the word itself has its own momentum. But in terms of, as you say, people may have different things that are their core, you know, that ultimately speak to their core values or speak to their, you know, what they feel might, might be a purpose for them. And I would say that if you're kind of looking for that and you're not sure and you're feeling you know disempowered and you don't know what it is that you, know, you want to act and you don't quite know where or how, I would start from, and this came from an amazing lawyer, acquaintance of mine called uh, Margaret Rose Goddard, is start from the thing that makes you outraged. So find the thing that really upsets you because it feels so unfair and wrong in the world. And that's the area that you're going to want to put your energy into. But it won't tell you how to do it. The thing that will tell you how to do it, in my opinion, you know, obviously there may be other ways, but the thing that will tell you how to do it is what is the thing you love doing? Apply the thing you love doing to the thing that outrages you. There you've got your action. Then it's because, you know, real action just comes out of integrity of your action with your values. And most people are so busy trying to put bread on the table or kind of, you know, get from one day or one week to the next or, you know, try and, you know, move a little bit up the job ladder in their particular area. That they're not necessarily taking the time or space to actually do that and kind of go, okay, what you know, what do I care about most, and, and how do I act on that? And that's what those two things could do. Find the thing that really outrages you, and then use the thing that you really love doing to address that. And you know, I mean, I'll give you a little example. I mean, wonderful woman I know who felt really strongly about um, nuclear weapons. Actually, interestingly, coming up in the, in the same uh, category as this set that you were talking about. But she's what was her thing? Craft. What did she end up doing? Knitting and orchestrating the collective knitting of a mile long pink scarf that stretched all the way around a nuclear base and created this you know and it was all done by women and it was pink and it was like this great big huge piece of knitting that was that she publicized she organized she galvanized people to do she you know she because that was what she loved and, and it was you know and it ended up encompassing this nuclear base and creating this incredible kind of you know media of, Stir around this, and and you know, causing, you know, genuine conversation and 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 sort of galvanization in the world from this thing that she loved doing applied to the thing that outraged her.
0: It's when you talk about these things, it makes me feel. One, one, I'm going back and thinking, I was outraged at the plastic. I was outraged that maybe I couldn't fix the whole world, but at least I could fix what I was doing. And what I like doing? Did I love cooking? It's hard for me to tell because I love cooking now. I mean, I can't tell. I mean, all my friends are like, Josh, you don't have to say every time you eat, you don't have (laughs) to tell me how much you love it. I'm like, I can't help it. Try eating a mango that's delicious. I don't make mangoes, but I mean, try eating something really delicious and not telling people. It's hard. And I love it. And it it connects me to a community. It saves me money and all these things. So I can't even tell how much I love food before because it's so overwhelming that it just comes out. And when you tell me about someone doing something like that, it makes me feel now that I've made the switch to having acted. I want to act more. I don't feel like it's deprivation. I don't feel like it's sacrifice. I feel like it's opportunity. I know that there may be a transition period when, you know, the first year of not flying was hard and no one believes me. Everyone thinks, oh, it was easy for you. But for me, it's really hard. And then you commit. And when you commit all... Do you know the quote, that famous quote that's attributed to Goethe that... Yes. Yeah. Once you commit everything things just come into, fall into place that mm. you never could have predicted. Mm. And once you flip to that side, all these people become role models and they all become inspirations.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's absolutely right. And I think, I think the clarity of intention is just one of the most powerful forces on this planet. You know, if you know what it is that you're trying to achieve, you, you will gravitate everything that you think about, every, everything you see around you becomes a resource for making that happen. And it becomes, yeah, there's the, the, just an extraordinary clarity involved. And I think that that's, yeah, hugely powerful. And I think a lot of, you know, we're bombarded with so much information in our culture. I mean, so much information, there's a lot of it's very fragmented, you know, a lot of it's very, a lot of it's sensational, a lot of it's very kind of short little bits of things. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me for a second that, you know, people are confused or, you know, they don't know what to think. I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things that I love about getting older you know people our culture sort of idolizes you know I don't know the ages of 18 to 23 in terms of you know when you you you, you know you're looking your best you're maybe you're physically fittest etc but you know what I love getting older because I get better at stuff I can think better at stuff my common sense operates better it's not so much you know sort of I remember spending years kind of worrying about whether I was saying the right thing about something had I read the right books was my dinner conversation going to be boring you know all of these sorts of things and you end up kind of of repeating stuff rather than actually thinking about stuff. And the older I get, the more I kind of just look at things when they happen or listen to people when they talk and think, well, does that make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, ask about it or, you know, do something. It's like you stop kind of being so concerned about whether what a hundred other people have said is the right thing for you to be saying, you know, and and, and I love that. It's almost like you kind of get better at sort of doing life and thinking things. And and that's really exciting. I mean, you know, yeah, it's great.
0: You remind me of a scene in a movie, 13 Days, about the Cuban Missile Crisis in the Kennedys and in, in the White House. And there's a scene in it where, I, I forget how old Kennedy was. He was a young man, I think about 40 years old, with the fate of the world in, in his hands. So it's him and his brother, RFK, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy. And there's one scene where they're talking, they're in the Oval Office. And I think some people just left. And one of them says the other, I was w- trying to figure out what so-and-so might do. And then I realized it's just us it's us like we are and it's hard to imagine being jfk being you know the leader of the of the united states and but that's where we are we're all it's just us we all of us has the potential to reach whatever level of responsibility and action and results that we're willing to go for it's just us i mean it's just us but it's also weird you know I, it, yeah
1: it's like it's not just us it is us it's yeah. kind of yeah yeah i know, I know what you mean I, I, absolutely i think that's absolutely hugely important and it's kind of interesting i mean if you don't mind me bring, bringing us back to the subject of ecocide for a second i mean pe- people often talk to us uh, or you know sort of ask us about you know w- won't this be something that kind of uh, you know h- how will you ever get this to be accepted in let's say the corporate sector for example you know because so much industrial activity on you know on our planet is is damaging to the environment. And we like to think of it as, and I'll just use this very kind of well-known analogy of the stick and the carrot, is that, you know, people tend to think of criminal law as a stick and yes on one level of course it is you know it's a it's about saying thou shalt not it's actually about drawing a line in the sand and actually creating a kind of a moral you know aspect to something you know we want people to think about serious harm to nature as not just you know sort of criminal in the sense of illegal but also criminal in the sense of bad and wrong and therefore you know an individual or a key decision maker will be thinking twice about the decision they make in case it's going to lead to severe damage and they're going to end up losing their personal freedom. So in that area, yes, of course, it's a stick. But on another level, and this is something that I understood really for the first time only a few months ago, it's also a carrot. It's also about empowering people. And I started to to mention to you just before we began the recording about this this cookery program that was really popular in the UK a couple of decades ago, which is this, this program called Ready, Steady, Cook, where you're given a certain set of ingredients and you're, you're given a certain amount of time and you have to create a beautiful dish in that time. And the way we would love to see everybody, I mean, you know, from the corporate sector to, to politics to, to uh, you know, people on the street, is if there is this new rule coming into place, where it's a new ground rule where, you know, when you are looking at your next business project you're not just looking at how do i go about this without killing anybody which is so internalized you don't even have to think about it to how do i go about this project without destroying the environment and how in my particular sector in my particular walk of life with my particular you know expertise how do i apply that you know how do i use that as a parameter to create, you know, to unleash my creativity. Now, you know, I used to be an entrepreneur, you know, when, you know, in business, having a specific and clear framework or limit, you know, gives you those possibilities to go, right, here are my parameters. What can I do within those parameters? And what is the beautiful dish ultimately that I can create knowing that in a few years' time, there's going to be this new law in place where, you know, I can't make a decision that's going to destroy the environment. And, you know, how do you approach that constructively? And what we're finding, which is fascinating, what we're finding is that actually there are a lot of corporate leaders who are really wanting to be innovative, who are really wanting to go in the right direction. And so many of the sustainable practices that are needed for a kind of thriving relationship with nature are already you know, available, whether that's regenerative agriculture, whether it's circular economy, whether it's renewable energy, all of these things. But a lot of people who would like to move in those, those directions and, you know, and others that, that have a positive relationship with nature at the moment, they feel disadvantaged because if they want to do that, then those who are, you know, if there's no constraint on those who want to do it the old dirty way, then how can you, you know, make a success of doing it, you know, in a better way. But once a rule like this is in place, You do have that freedom. You get to say to your shareholders, for example, do you know what? We can't go that route because in not too long, we're not going to be able to. It's going to be illegal. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a a much more constructive way of doing things. So effectively, you're empowering all of that. But you're also empowering all of those people who are working to improve existing environmental regulation, or who are working to improve best practices, who are looking into the knowledge that's required around the impacts that we have on the environment, because everything that they do is supported by this law. I mean, at the moment, if you work in, I don't know, if you work in human rights, or you work in social justice, or all of those things, you know, at least you know that mass murder and torture are criminal. Now if you're working in the environmental arena you don't have that at the moment you don't have that kind of foundational piece so this is what can give you that foundational piece that support with which to move forward with everything that you're doing which will ultimately improve the whole structure so yeah i guess that's that's a way of saying that you know something as apparently black and white as a criminal law can actually be hugely empowering across the board
0: constraints breed creativity is three words that stick in my head all the time and when you care about something, giving someone a deadline motivates them. When they don't care about it, give them a deadline and say, ah, and giving them a standard of, of success, a measure of, of quality, when you care about it, gives you motivation. And the way you were describing it, it feels like you're giving decision makers the fulcrum. If you say, give me a place to stand and I, I can move the world, like you're giving them the place to stand. You're giving them a foundation Kind of like B Corps, I guess, in it saying we—it's not just share price or profits. Uh, there's other considerations, and now yeah. we know that they feel it. I guarantee that if, if you sit down with the CEO of Shell or Dupont, that they care about the environment and they want cleaner as much as anybody. It's possible they don't. I haven't met the person, the people, but I bet if given that as a constraint, which hardly—it's—it's it's kind of weird to describe—not polluting the earth as a constraint, but somehow that's, it, it goes by the wayside. So we say not polluting as a constraint. Now they can work with that. Now they have something solid and not just soft, not, not that soft would be, you know, something that they can really point to and say, this is something we can't do. We can't get around. Uh, we're, not that we'd want, if we wanted to, even if we wanted to, we couldn't.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I think that's absolutely it. I mean, you've, you know, you've, you've hit the nail on the head and I think this also touches on another aspect that, we often get asked about actually because you know there are a lot of very upset people in the world completely understandably because of all the destruction that's happening and they're asking for justice and of course, I mean, there's actually, a, you know, there's a lot of civil environmental cases going on around the world, including climate litigation cases, and even some, you know, sort of rather brilliant precedent setting cases where, you know, like the, the Juliana case in the US, like the case in, in Australia, where the young people have just, you know, won this judgment that says the government has a duty of care to the future generations. But in in the vast majority of civil cases, you know, you can, end up with a a very useful bank of evidence. I mean, they're very important for all these reasons, you know, create a a bank of evidence. There's also, you know, the the naming and shaming aspect potentially that can nudge corporations in that, you know, where it hurts in terms of their PR. And maybe if you're lucky, you get some decent compensation financially, but what you don't get is a change in practices. And that is what this law can potentially provide in terms of if you're making a criminal law at the highest level, you're creating, you know, a kind of, a way for you know people to be measuring what what they you know what they're doing now with a future situation and it's also very important in that context that this is not something that is retroactive when it comes into play is when it comes into play so you can't go back and and sort of you know punish an oil and gas company that did something that might violate that law you know 20 years previously you can't do that but actually it's very important that you can't do that because it ties into what we were just talking about And and it also ties into, and it's also one of the reasons, I mean, there are several, but it's one of the reasons that we aim to criminalise ecocide at the international level or to to push for that particular forum at the International Criminal Court because it takes some time because you've got to gather the support of many states. Two-thirds of the member states have got to be behind it for it to actually become adopted. And that takes some time. But all of the time that that takes almost acts as a sort of compliance period. People can see it coming. And so you have this sort of sense that sometime in the future, not very far, of course, we know we actually haven't got very long to make, you know, to start really making some concrete differences. But having that period of time is actually hugely important because that's what enables all of that creativity to get, to come into play.
0: If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshospodekcom slash donate. I was reading that part on your page about how it's not retractable. I'm like, all that stuff that's already happened, we got to hold them accountable. And then of course, that flies in the face of any legal, every dictator wants to like, oh, everything before was illegal. And it just doesn't <laughs> yeah. work. And then that started falling into place too. You know, you talked about clarity and there's something that I'm trying to imagine. And maybe maybe you thought about this more. I'm trying to imagine clear, like you must have clarity of a vision of companies acting in the future, in governments acting, what changes in the future with ecocide versus without ecocide?
1: I think what you just start to look at is what you start to sort of enable is a different way of thinking. So it helps, particularly, I mean, if you think about the fact that we have centuries of a very set Kind of mindset in terms of how we relate to nature. So, you know, the sort of globally dominant thinking, which obviously has come from the, the sort of Western canon, is very sees nature as other. It sees nature as something to be dominated, extracted from. You know, something that you know humanity is lord and master of, etc. And of course, that you know, not all cultures do see it that way. I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence that 80% of the world's biodiversity is, you know, is in the kind of, you know, guardianship of indigenous cultures, for example, who do really see humanity and nature as deeply connected and intertwined. And I think that that's actually a kind of a factual reality that we've sort of educated ourselves out of and I find it quite interesting for example that you know it's the spiritual leaders you know such as indigenous leaders or Pope Francis for example who was one of the early advocates for for what we're doing for, for criminalizing ecocide you know have this perception that you know, the, our connection with the natural world is completely, you know, we we can't separate ourselves from the natural world. And so there's something about putting this law in place where you put ecocide alongside genocide. And I realize it took me a little while to get to the point of your question here, but you know, if you put ecocide alongside genocide, you're saying what you're saying, and this is really important because it's a really strong message, particularly at the international law level. What you're saying is that serious damage to the environment is as bad as serious damage to people and what that does is it starts to readjust our cultural assumptions you know if those things are equally bad then clearly the ecosystems around me are as important as me and in fact ultimately i actually completely depend on them so there's you know there's a there's a kind of a a sort of shift i mean it it's kind of almost acupunctural. It's this very strategic intervention, but the potential ramifications are really quite huge. And when sometimes people say to us, how can you say that, you know, ecocide should be up there on a par with genocide? Are you saying that, you know, some, somebody who chops down the forest is, is, is as bad as I mean, Adolf Hitler or whatever? And I think what the distinction that you have to make there. Is between uh, intent and consequence. So, with genocide, it really, in, on one level, is kind of the most heinous of crimes in the level at the level of intent because you actually it actually involves an intention to destroy a people. Whereas with ecocide, that's not the case in the sense that. People don't necessarily embark on ecosystem destruction per se they in fact mostly they don't it's it's usually a profit motive, and you know this is it's collateral damage. the natural word is collateral damage. But when you look at the consequences, then you really start to see why putting ecocide on the same level as war crimes and genocide is so important because the potential upshot of the destruction that we're that we're creating. Threatens not just part of a people or a people, it threatens, you know, human civilization as we know it. And so when you look at the description. Um, that you find in the Rome Statute itself about the crimes under that jurisdiction, which are the most serious crimes of concern to the international community as a whole, you realise that actually ecocide absolutely belongs there because that's the level of destruction and consequence that we're looking at. And that also brings me to, interestingly, brings me to the the definition that's just emerged, the legal definition that's just emerged that created the flurry of of media activity that you, you talked about having picked up on a couple of months ago. And that is that it focuses not on particular acts and saying, this is a thing you shouldn't do and this other thing is a thing you shouldn't do. What it says is, you know, ecocide is unlawful or wanton acts committed with the knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage being caused to the environment by those acts. Now, what that means effectively is that it's about the potential consequence of your acts. And that's also really important because it's actually phrased, and and there are other international crimes that are also phrased this way, it's phrased as a crime of endangerment. In other words, it's not about approaching a horrible scene of damage and trying to trace it back to who did it. It's about looking at those key decisions and saying, which of these decisions is likely to lead to this harm? And if it is likely to, and you should have known it was, then that's a crime to go ahead with it. And that's really powerful. And so to come back again to your original question of how will, you know, how different will the world look? You know, I can't describe it in detail, but I think anybody listening to this would be able to imagine that if every decision you make has to have the same level of underlying assumption as the assumptions we make every day about harming other people, then you'll have an idea about the kinds of direction that we could be moving in with this.
0: You're describing, I put the word stewardship into what you're saying. And when we act to think of how our behavior will affect others, it's not a burden. It's exactly. actually a great thing. Mm-hmm. Also, the, you took great care, I think, to distinguish what are some differences between genocide and ecocide. And it reminds me of a, of a big struggle that I had when I was working on a couple chapters of my book because I was very much inspired by the British abolitionists of the late 1700s, early 1800s, Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce. And and I was very concerned. This is when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening across this country. And as a white man talking about slavery and abolition, will I be understood or misunderstood? And so I had to... One of the things that I came across that when people who wrote about slavery at that time, it was every culture in the world for thousands of years since before human history... Had covered these, had practiced it, and if you stopped a person on the street, they would say it was good, not it's a regrettable side effect. But you know, we're bringing these people from cannibalism into civilization and things like that, and the empire depends on it, and and if we don't do it, Spain will and France will and the Netherlands will and so forth. And you know, what about the person who's got a, uh, the economy depends on it, and we want sugar and 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 uh, coffee and, and molasses, and if we we it's easy to look back now and say they must have known what we know or it's impossible to miss that future generations looking back at us today will be shocked at how long we could take to look at plastic and wait to legislate on it and no one suggests should we use asbestos should we have let it paint all over the place should we sell cigarettes to 10 year olds maybe we should put a tax on cigarettes sold to minors to, to curb it a little bit. Maybe we should, yeah, it, it, no one would think that way. And now when we choose to live far away from our families so that we feel compelled to fly to see them all the time, we feel like, oh, if you don't let me fly, I, you will never to see my mom again. But that's what people thought about these things that we think are just so ghastly, we can't even talk about them today, except to say how ghastly they are. But if we really want to learn from them, we have to learn what it was like from them in this situation and realize how future generations will look at us. And when I say future generations, it's like a couple of years from now. <laughs> and when you talk about scope and scale of things, I can find you headlines where roughly like 8, 9, 10 million people a year, just one thing from, from breathing polluted air, 8, 9, 10 million people per year, that's a number that's increasing. And that's like nothing compared to the extinctions and, all, and the people displaced from their homes and all these, like the measures are way off the charts. Mm-hmm. or in, not off the charts, but right in the middle of the charts now compared to these things from the past that people say, you just can't touch those things. Don't even talk about them. And we have barely begun to see, you know, we're seeing what, what the effects of several generations of people, maybe more than several gener- centuries of people, but really the amount of pollution really kicked in the past couple of generations. Mm-hmm. But we, what we do will, ha- will affect others. Everything we do will affect future generations. Yeah. And what we were talking about before about how feeling like what if what people feel like what I do doesn't matter, everything matters both directions. And to take that responsibility, if you don't mind my, I'll just do one more on my soapbox here is that <laughs> if we think that that's a bird, it's to take others into account. If you feel like, but I want to leave, it's just easier for me to leave my air conditioner on from May until September 24 seven. And I like to come home and I like, you know, I like to be cool when I walk in. I don't like that 30 seconds of when the air conditioner kicks in a minute or two. And if you think, oh, I'm going to sweat when I don't need to. And what's the difference? Like, I can't see the difference. And if you think that's a burden, you're not going to get to do that because you have to think about someone else. When you start thinking about the others, it's it's connection. It's That's what life is about. It's how do we put into words what it feels like to help someone who's helpless, who would otherwise suffer from our own... Actions. What more do we want in life? Yeah,
1: I think that's amazing and absolutely right. There's, I mean, it's qu- kind of quite well known in a way that that you know, giving a gift gives as much or more to the giver as it does to the the person who receives. And it, and effectively, that's that's kind of you know what you're talking about on a on a large scale. And and I think that there's something about the development over time, and this speaks to what you were talking about about how you know people used to think of slavery as normal there is something about the kind of expansion of our circle of care you know in terms of what we're able to think about as as our sphere of influence and how many people that might include and from what might have been at one stage you know our family that we look after our tribe or our community our village you know that then becomes you know as our horizons expand that circle of care potentially expands as well and I think you know there was probably I can't remember what, you know who first sort of alerted me to this but I, it seemed so obvious when I saw it that you know once humanity has gone into space and taken a picture of the globe you kind of realize well you know we're kind of this is this is one incredible you know, Earth, planet in space, it's the only one we know of that has, you know, that can sustain life as we know it. I mean, you know, there may be others. I mean, I, would ha- I wouldn't would have the arrogance to say that there can't be others, but effectively that is our home. And and it stops then being about, you know, my particular home or, you know, my particular country. And I think that that, that the whole kind of move towards you know, what what on one level you might call globalization, but also on another, the ability to think beyond borders, you know, really was affected hugely by that point in terms of, I mean, one one way of, of talking about it in the context of the waste, the plastic waste you're talking about, you know, when you look at that picture of the earth in space, you kind of know that there is actually nowhere to throw something away. You know, there is, where's the away? I think it might have been Bill McDonough who said that. I'm not sure. But, you know, and we start to sort of look at And it is about, it's almost about kind of unshackling or unlocking the way we think so that, and I actually, I I brought up Bill McDonough there, but I mean, you've no doubt, um, you know, probably read his book or know about the cradle to cradle movement in terms of, you know, design and in business and so on. This, you know, this idea that you actually design something so that it's fully recyclable, whether biologically or technically, but also it's about an attitude and the attitude is, it's actually, you know, sustainability is just one step. And, and in fact, Polly Higgins used to say to me, she used to laugh and say, well, you know, if you told me that your relationship or your marriage was sustainable, what do you think I'd think? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that's kind of, you know, it's a sort of bare minimum. We're just about holding it together, you know? And, and what Bill McDonald talks about in Cradle to Cradle is actually what you want to be doing is, is not, it's not net zero. It's kind of, it's actually, how do you create, you know, a product or behave in a way in the world that actually improves it, that actually improves our relationship with nature. It doesn't just reduce it slightly and make it slightly less harmful, but it actually, you know, it works in harmony with nature. And this is going to sound crazy, but there's this one section in that book where he talks about, and, and there's actually two of them, I think they wrote that book. They they did this research um, around creating a piece of furniture. And this is interesting because furniture is one of those products that's often sort of a blend between kind of natural and synthetic stuff and it's difficult to recycle right so they kind of went for this as as almost a kind of totemic example and they wanted to find a company that could create a sofa that wouldn't damage not only wouldn't damage the environment but would actually at every stage of its process be an enhancement the environment whether that's to the aesthetic of the person that buys it whether that's to the to the water and air that are involved in the you know in the manufacture and the chemicals and so on and it took them quite a long time but they did do it and this description was of this factory somewhere in scandinavia i believe that made this sofa and the material you know with all all natural materials and, and and you know dyes that weren't polluting and all of this and in that fact people loved working in that factory Because the air wasn't toxic, the the factory itself was designed to be pleasant to be in, there was all of that. But not only that, the water that came out of that factory was cleaner and less polluting than the water that went in because of the processes that they had employed. And it sounds crazy, but it actually made me cry because I was thinking, my God. If this is what is possible, what the hell are we playing at? You know, because it's like you know, then this can be done everywhere with everything. And why that? Why on earth aren't we doing it? You know, and and it was just I was I, yeah, it was a, it was a real moment for me. You know, just kind of realizing that that you just that kind of shift in the the approach to things that can make you know ultimately not just less of a bad difference, but actually make a positive difference.
0: I'm going to share a story that didn't bring tears to my eyes, but it was a pretty, I suspect that a lot of people heard that and thought, yeah, but Ikea makes a cheaper one and you don't understand what it's like when someone's on the border and they can't pay their bills and they, they, they need to get something. And so Ikea is going to do it for them. And our past guest on this podcast was Catherine Garcia. She ran for mayor of New York city and uh, almost made it. And she talked about one of the things she loves about New York is the parks. And she mentioned gateway national park. So that's very far out. The far Rockaways, very far from where I live. And I said, something about the way she described it, I decided to ride my bike out there. So I rode rode my bike out. It's like 70 miles there and back. And part of it, I go through Brooklyn uh, Prospect Park, which is upscale. And the stores around there are selling high quality stuff. And as I ride further, it's getting to lower and lower income neighborhoods. And I start seeing 99 cent stores and dollar stores and payday loans and cheap liquor stores. And something that I kind of got, but didn't really put together until I saw it in this one particular ride and if I go up Flatbush Avenue, it gets more impoverished. Those stores aren't helping anyone. It's not that someone doesn't have a lot of money, therefore they go to Dollar General or a $0.99 cent store. It's they go to the ninety cents store and they get locked in because they get something that's not really very good. It's not going to last very long. It's going to break and they're going to have to go back again. And now when I think of Walmart and Ikea and, and Amazon, I think of them as like they're payday loan stores. They're giving you something... That's really actually very expensive, but they're giving it to you at such a low start-off cost that they trap you in. And there's there's no great revolution to many people. Or there's a lot of our economy that's built like that. Like first one, first one's cheap, but the next one's a cost you.
1: But also the, the, the other aspect of that is that it's not genuinely cheap because it. what 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 it is is a reflection of a, a, an industrial approach that doesn't actually take costs into account that are externalized. Yes. Yeah. So effectively, you know, I mean I mean a, a, an easy example would be, you know, buying organic vegetables for example. You know, they they might be twice the price in the supermarket of the cheap mass produced vegetables, but the price is actually reflecting much better what the you know is actually involved in the production um in terms of you know the labor in terms of you know it's more labor intensive to produce you know really good organic food and the you know the other food is not reflecting the damage it's creating to the environment it's not it's not reflecting the depletion of soils it's not reflecting you know all of the things that are happening to the natural systems that should then be perpetuating the, the ability to produce that food but actually deteriorate so that they can't because the company is not paying the earth for, you know, all those, uh, you know, what they call those ecosystem services. And it's it's one of those things where I, I feel slightly torn because using that language, you know, of ecosystem services, natural capital, you know, giving a sort of value, monetary value to nature ultimately is not where we want to be. And from looking at what you were saying about you know, how future generations are going to look back on it, there's going to be a point where that's going to feel like a nonsense, I believe, in the future, assuming we don't actually fry ourselves to a crisp in the meantime. But at the same time, acknowledging that we, don't, we simply don't take into account the real costs of what we're doing is actually a really important step in that process. And actually, if we look at you know that report that just came out from the world bank at the end of june you know the the, the economy of nature i can't remember exactly what it's called where they you know they're looking at you know trying to reset you know the economic values so that they do take into account these things and because those who are making the economic decisions right now think in those ways it's important to bring those narratives together as a kind of i feel as a kind of stepping stone towards having a different attitude toward, towards the natural world.
0: There's an issue here of framing that seems, when you think about it, you're thinking about how much this helps people, helps corporations, helps governments at every level. Yeah. Which is how it feels to me. Like I'm going to find, I'm going to keep parroting it and, then, and also refining how I communicate it. That what I'm talking about is joy, community, connection, fun, freedom, meaning and purpose. And for a lot of people, they see it as not that. I mean C- ecocide has CIDE, which we, you know that means kill mm-hmm. and how do we get people to see that this is and I guess if you're in an industry that's making lots of profits off of say extracting oil from the ground mm-hmm. then you're not thinking you might be thinking, well, maybe that's better for the world, but not, not, not actually for me and although I would think that if they really got it, they would see actually for them, how do we make this like something that's like this is actually pro. You, pro-business, pro-government, pro-everything.
1: I think people have done it. And, and, and one example that, that sprang to mind earlier, I, I, I know I'm not going to remember the name of the actual company now, and I believe it was in Norway. It was definitely one of the Scandinavian countries. One of their biggest oil and gas companies transformed itself over a relatively short period into one of their biggest renewable energy companies. So that takes, effectively, the ability to sort of step back and say, well, what do we actually do? We produce energy. How can we produce energy in a way that is not destructive to the environment that actually is going to, you know, set, set us on the right track for the future? You know, we have all the infrastructure for, you know, in terms of the, you know, the, the ways of thinking the you know, the, the sort of distribution, the kind of relationships with customers, the you know, everything else. You know, we've got everything in place to sell people energy. we just need to materially do it in a different way. We've got to retrain people we're going to, you know we're going to start setting up wind farms and, and and you know doing that instead of extracting oil. I mean you're telling me the, the, the people who build oil rigs can't build wind farms. I mean an oil rig's wildly more complicated to build than a wind farm. you know it, it's like it, it really just takes as I say a little bit of imagination and a little bit of intention and you can repurpose the kind of thing you're doing, to use different material ingredients, you know, I mean, in terms of the processes and, and and in terms of the, you know, literally the the ingredients that you're extracting from the ground.
0: Do they feel that way? Because there's a lot of people who feel like, how do we frame it in a way? Well, not that we're going to answer it right here, right now. <laughs> so, I mean, one of my big, one of the things I really was, I've had guests on this podcast. Uh, one was a big Trump supporter, huge Trump supporter. So they, the viewers can't uh, see this, but we're we're on Zoom so I can see the video of you. So- Imagine behind me, except him, Trump 2020, uh, make America great again. right? And I talked to him about what he cares about, what the environment means to him. And for him, it's small town America. I listened to that episode to get it uh, in his words. And he volunteers based on his feelings to, to recycle for the first time in his life. And not to me, recycling is somewhat of a scam because he's going to be plastic, plastic recycling. I, but, but do I judge? No, because if you want to stop someone, judge them. Because I knew what would happen by the second episode. After he does it for six weeks, something like that, he comes back on and I say, how was it? And he goes, he talks about how um, his amount of trash has decreased. His, his, his girlfriend is part of it now. They're doing it together. And he says, you know, more people should do this. And I think, you know, one of the big things I want to do is to go to, in America, conservatives, evangelicals, Trump supporters, their hearts and minds are either there's something I'm missing, I could be wrong. Maybe there's something they get, we, he, they and I disagree on a lot of environmental behavior. I could be wrong. It's possible. I've been wrong about things before. It could be that they might see something that, that they don't as a result of me, and they might change their behavior. That's the, their hearts and minds are the playing field of how do they see it? How can, we, how can we go to where they are so that they say, either find out, oh, I'm missing something, or they say, oh, I was missing something. And we want ecocide to be a law.
1: I think one of the issues here is, is that we have a little bit of a tendency to make things either or, um, and to sort of think of things as black or white. When we were talking earlier about the the kind of resource of, of, of kind of accessing people's sense of agency in terms of, you know, what can they do? How can they think about something actually just asking people questions, which is obviously what, you know, your job as a podcaster, that's what you're doing. I'll give you an example my closest colleague was having a conversation about ecocide law with her brother who works in big infrastructure projects, like, you know, big electricity substations under the sea, you know, that kind of level of, of infrastructure. And, <laughs> and he had all these questions for her. So she was, you know, he was saying, well, you know, if ecocide law, comes, I mean, what about this? What about the other, you know, what about this, you know, what, what? how will that affect our budgets on this? How will that affect, you know, how will we be able to do X, Y, or Z? And what she said to him was, these are brilliant questions. You're exactly the right person to be thinking about them because you're deeply embedded in that thing that you're doing. And those are the questions that need to be discussed so that, you know, those working in your industry, doing what you're doing, can actually start getting their heads around this and thinking, well, actually, how can we creatively approach this? And those questions are what are going to lead to those answers. So again, it's 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 not kind of making someone wrong for the thing that they're doing and saying, well, you need to do this thing because it's going to you to do it in a different way it's like okay if we were going to approach this in a different way what would be the questions? What would be the objections? How would you get around them? You know, kind of effectively, there's a dialogue there. There's a there's a specificity, a complexity and a specificity that is best addressed by the people who are right in those places. And we have such a kind of traditionally siloed way of thinking, you know, where things sort of come top down and, you know, everyone has a line manager and, you know, a policy is dictated from above. And then, you know, Mr. Project Manager has suddenly got to sort out all of these problems. You know, what if you went to the project manager? and said, well, you know, how would you do this? You know, how, uh, let's take, how about, you know, the entire country takes Friday afternoon off, you know, or, uh, you know, a paid Friday afternoon to think about how they're going to address, you know, this 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 legal change in the next few years, you know, and, and I mean, I, you know, I can't even begin to imagine the brilliant ideas that would come out of that.
0: Yeah, the fastest, most effective way to get people to figure it out is to, okay, I'm going to absolve myself. I don't know the political feasibility of this, but if we simply said, say we make, we produce 10 units of, of pollution per year. If we said next year, the rule is going to be nine, and the year after that's going to be eight, and then 10 years it's going to be zero. Everyone's like, oh, what are we going to do? Right? All the economists are going to say, like, it can't be done. If we do it, people will very quickly figure out what to do. Mm-hmm.
1: You've got to credit people with that creativity.
0: And not like not, it's not going to take years. It'll take like, I think most of the big problems will take a week to solve, and a lot of them will take a couple hours. And people are just going to say, oh well, I'll do it this way now. And to think we have to solve it. Yeah, so-
1: That is the power. That is the power. I mean, that's actually the power of, of, that's the positive power of law, actually, is to, you know, if you, and actually a number of, you know, actors in the corporate sphere are saying, give us the guidelines, give us the rules so that we know what we've got to adhere to and we'll create the solutions. They're actually saying that. This
0: is a favor to them. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a tool.
0: I'm glad I've had you here because this is really, (laughs) it's illuminating and invigorating. Now, there's something that, if you look at my tweet history, when the ego stuff came out, the ecocide stuff came out, there's something, and and if this is a distraction and uh, authority question, I can let it go. But genocide being a law Mm -hmm. on a grand scale doesn't stop murder or even manslaughter from being a law on the individual level. Mm -hmm. So if ecocide is a law, would not the individual level... I mean, I look at people wantonly doing things that they know full well is doing the individual level of ecocide. But uh, okay, ecocide is, I'm sorry, some parallel of ecocide, but not Mm ecocide. You know, someone is in New York and they say, uh, this is great party in LA next weekend. I'm going to go there and come back the next day. Mm -hmm. This is, feels to me like there's something there, feels a lot like ecocide on the individual level. Like the the genocide is to murder or manslaughter as ecocide is to whatever this would be. Yeah. Is that something that's too far afield from what you guys are doing because you're working on international law or is it something that's also connected?
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, thematically, it's absolutely connected. I mean, we don't focus on those kind of individual level environmental. I mean, I'm going to put crimes in in the quote marks here because, you know, obviously the sort of thing you're just describing isn't currently criminal, but what we feel is that, well there's a couple of two things that come up there for me. One is that ecocide, approaching ecocide at the international level and making serious harm and international crime, has a huge narrative power. It has a huge power to shift kind of consciousness around what people consider to be bad and wrong. And that's the really key thing, because what it does is it supports the whole existing evidence of environmental, uh, sorry the whole existing edifice of environmental law and therefore encourages the, you know, the ongoing development of, you know, less sweeping laws that could ultimately apply to the sort of thing you're talking about. But I think the other thing we also need to think about is that, you know, the corporate PR machine has done a very good job over the last couple of decades of making individuals feel responsible for the global crisis and also powerless to do anything about it in in this sense that, you know, that they, you'll be told this is all down to consumer choice. You know, you choose to drive a fossil fuel car, you choose to buy, you know, a plastic, whatever it is, you know, and we're just responding to demand. And ultimately, it's down to, you know, the individual. And, you know, in fact, the whole concept of carbon footprint was really amplified by, I think, BP or one of these big oil and gas, you know, what's your carbon footprint? You know, somehow saying that, you know, the consumer is ultimately the one who, you know, it's its the collect- collectively, it's consumers who are who are creating this crisis. Now, don't get me wrong, consumer power is hugely important. And actually, you know, boycotting products or, you know, sh- naming and shaming companies can actually really change behavior. And that's amazing. But let's also not forget that, I mean, in my own case, for example, I live in a rural area, that means that in, in practice, I drive a car. Um, it's also a very hilly area, you know, and, and I have to do an awful lot of things in what I'm doing. So it's not practical for me to get around without a vehicle. My vehicle is a fossil fuel vehicle, not because I want it to be, but because I can't afford anything else. And that decision is made at the level of the top of industry and policymakers. Who, what is being subsidized? What is being pushed? What is being supported in terms of alternatives? You know, how are you know, how how is anybody making it easier for me to to, you know, look at alternative methods of travel or, you know, ways of sharing transport and so on, you know, like you say, some of these things could ultimately be solved in a couple of weeks, you know, if you, if you mandated, you know, I don't know, all cars have to be shared and, you know, done by this particular system. That means that, you know, you're not, you don't have all these vehicles in action that don't need to be, I mean, you know, there's, there's also any number of different potential solutions to that but those decisions happen at the top level they don't have, they have they're, they're actually what what they result in is a certain number of options that are offered to citizens rather than choices that are offered to consumers so i think that there are there are two different things at play here i think one is the kind of cultural impact of criminalizing ecocide at the top level and changing that kind of consciousness and the other is is also just is is kind of acknowledging I mean, for us for, for what we're doing is is, is acknowledging that you have to, you know, of course, encourage everybody to deal with their own carbon footprint and to take individual actions. But at the same time, they're always going to feel powerless if those rules don't apply at the top level. Sorry, I'm not sure if I've completely kind of kept on track there. I sort of meandered a bit with my answer, but...
0: (laughs) Well, I think what I took away was that I I took away your focus of that focusing on a corporate level Mm. and showing people that Something's happening at a big level.
1: There's something about a sense of justice in that for, uh, I, I believe, you know, for, for the ordinary citizen is that, you know, how, because I, I think, you know, a lot of, we encountered this quite a lot, you know, how come, you know, I'm supposed to take care of, you know, my carbon footprint and yet, you know, X or Y politician or celebrity is just flying around the world whenever they feel like it and, you know, living on a super yacht and, you know, uh, there's a revolving door between corporate boards and politics and and all of these sorts of things. And somehow, you know, those rules don't apply to them.
0: Okay. One of the big, for me, over the course of this conversation, and since I heard about ecocide in the first place, but especially in this conversation, is I feel like this is a huge boon for business. Not not boon in the sense of, like, it's going to drive up the GDP. I think it'll drive up the Earth's ability to sustain and regenerate life, which I would rank more important than the GDP. (laughs) And I don't really value the GDP as, a, as the right measure anyway. But this is a very pro. This is helpful to business decision makers. This is a tool to help them. Definitely. And so I also feel like it would be helpful for the, at the individual level as well. Uh, that is something that will improve your life if you realize that yes, you would have fun at that party in LA, and yes, the chi- the the ticket is not that expensive, as you mentioned there's it's the externality is not covered there's all sorts of subsidies but even so your life will be better in ways that you might not realize by taking other everyone else into account yes you're going to miss the party but you're not going to stare at the wall in that time you're going to do something else so i have to play it feels to me like the individual level would help the individual just as much as the the ecocide level would help governments and corporations
1: I think you're absolutely right. And and I and I think this comes down to ultimately it comes down to being conscious about the decisions that you make. And 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 you know, at the top level, that's what we think this law will do. But just on an everyday level, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, everything I do, or uh, everything I buy, or, you know, all the decisions that I make, you know, I'm not gonna by any means say that I'm some kind of you know, 100% paragon of ecological virtue. To be honest, in the conversation with you, I can already see you're doing better at that than I am. But at the same time, I'm taking these things into account and making some kind of, you know, judgment around that according to, you know, what I believe are the important, the important values and, and how to kind of balance those off. But unless I'm actually thinking about them, I'm just going to carry on doing what I've always done. So I think, you know, a, a lot of this is about, simply having people think differently or, or even kind of just, I mean, this sounds terrible because I don't mean that people don't think, but to think at all about ecological impact, for example. And, you know, all of that is, is a kind of incremental difference that, get, that that gets made. Every time somebody asks that question, every time someone questions, you know, they they pick up the plastic wrapped thing in the supermarket and they think, God, do I really want, you know, or they look at where it's from, you know, they look at, you know, you get a bag of apples and you go, Oh, hang on, this is from Chile and I'm in London. You know, how absurd is that? Or, or you know, those things that you hear. Oh, God, one of the most insane things that um, I heard about recently was from wonderful woman Helena Norberg, who wrote um, a book called Localism. And she was busy um, addressing this crazy thing of redundant trade where the UK exports lamb to New Zealand and New Zealand exports lamb to the UK. And you go, how is that even... You know, in, in what universe does that make any kind of sense? Or the only thing that can make that make sense is the idea that economic activity per se is what we're trying to do. It's insane. It's insane. So, I, I, I again, I, I may, maybe maybe the the sort of you know getting older and kind of getting better at thinking about stuff is just a question of kind of you know having your eyes open and applying common sense.
0: Yeah, well, I feel like one of the big things you bring is clarity is that this clarifies things. You're making it clear to people what, or, or the eco side would, would clarify certain decisions and certain way of looking at things. And then of course, the action that people do will lead to further that and presumably improve that, I believe will improve the lead them to change their lives in a way that they would say, yes, this is an improvement. I, I'm glad. I We could go on and I, I want to wrap this up. <laughs> But there's no doubt in my mind that you're going to be in the news more and Ecoside is going to be in the news more. And I hope you'll come back again and share more, especially as this passes various legislations and, and becomes law and, and different places to support it.
1: I, I would love to do that. I mean, this has been a wonderful conversation and, and and, and thank you for allowing me to kind of explore a whole bunch of tangents that relate back to, you know, to the subject in a way that I often don't get the chance to do. So yeah, really fascinating.
0: I wish we could have wrapped it all up in some way, but I think it's, exercise to the reader to the listener
1: (laughs) absolutely and and yeah and i I mean all i would say is a you know if if you'll permit me the 30 seconds is just to encourage your listeners to talk about ecocide because it has this kind of internal momentum it's like we're all aware of this level of serious harm that's happening in so many different areas of nature and so bringing it all together with this word has a kind of power to it and of as soon as you kind of grasp the the sense of it, I mean, you know, the literal meaning is to kill one's home, right? I mean, the planet is our home. So, you know, this word ecocide, as soon as you kind of get it, you're kind of saying, well, that's wrong. You know, we need to stop that. And that has its own momentum. So go talk about ecocide.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I feel a sense of almost envy of like something staring me in the face my whole life. And and then you've, and I didn't see it. And now, now it's there. It's clear. It's obvious. Thank you.
1: Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodekcom slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodekcom slash donate.